Welcome back to A Better Love. I'm your host, Dr. Greg, joined today by Dr. Earl Turner to talk about therapy for our kids, particularly our kids of color. Dr. Earl is a child psychologist, an author, professor, and the founder of Therapy for Black Kids. Dr. Earl, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have you. I, you know, I had the good fortune of meeting you way back when we were graduate students and uh, working for our National Graduate Student Association. I was impressed with you back then, have been impressed with you since then, uh, and you've been doing so much. So I, I'd love for our audience just to get to know you a little bit, particularly your work at Pepperdine, what you're up to right now. Absolutely, no. So first, it, we have known each other for a really long time, so I'm excited for all of the things that you're doing with your podcast, and I appreciate you for having me on as a guest. Um, so I've been teaching here in Los Angeles for about four years now, teaching our um, graduate programs through both the master's and the, and the doctoral level. Um, and primarily teach in the multicultural um, spaces. So I teach a course on multicultural counseling, pretty much every term. And then a lot of my research focuses in on the area as well. So uh, publish some work around African-Americans um, and mental health activism in, in the Black community, um, and recently published a paper looking at Black men and mental health as well. So um, that's sort of the focus of a lot of my work. And that's also connected to what I do with uh, Therapy for Black Kids, which you sort of mentioned in the in the intro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I asked this question of all my guests. How do you think love shows up if it does in what you're doing in the world these days? That's an interesting question for me. So I think uh, I'm a religious person, specifically grew up Christian Baptist family, still something that's important to me. One of the things that my family has really focused on the word agape love. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's been something that my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer probably 15 plus years ago. Um, and so the name of our team was Team Agape. Mm -hmm. um, and so really thinking about love and, and compassion and really showing up for others throughout your life. And so that's sort of a, a huge piece of, I think, how love shows up in my work and the things that I do in terms of my teaching, but, but also the things that I do within the community and through therapy for black kids. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a, it's a thread it goes way back to the roots of your belief about your existence and why we're here. I think it seems. Absolutely. I think we share some similar values around that for sure. Uh, there are many parents out there who have maybe never even considered uh, their kids going to therapy or therapy for their kids in general. And we have the good fortune now having a child psychologist on the show to talk a little bit about this. For parents, and this show is you know, going to be primarily focused for parents, but if parents are listening to this right now, they've got kids, younger kids, what are some of the reasons that parents are bringing their kids in to see a therapist, somebody like you? I mean, obviously, you know, one of the things that I you know, talk about in terms of my work, particularly mental health within the social media spaces is around education and what are some reasons that people should go to therapy. So initially, I think anyone, any child can benefit it from some way. So I think for parents, if you have concerns about some aspect of your child's life, that you could get some help and support from, from going to therapy. Um, but I do think for a lot of the families that I've worked with in the past, you know, I usually specialize in working with younger age children, so that age about 10 and under. Um, and so a lot of concerns around behavioral issues and, and managing their emotions and feelings. But also sometimes kids may struggle with, you know, some of those common things that we think about as it relates to, you know, anxiety and worrying about things. So worrying about school performance, worrying about friendships, um, sometimes experiencing some sadness about different things or even depression and 
and, and wanting to, to hurt themselves or, or not wanting to live anymore. Um, so I think those are some issues that sometimes parents recognize that their kids may be struggling with. And those can definitely be some things that they can work on in therapy. Sounds like as you're describing this, that there are aspects of reasons that an adult might walk into a therapist's office that for even folks, kids who are younger than 10, depression Absolutely. and anxiety and other things. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously adolescents, you know, I do some work with adolescents, but uh, a lot of my work has been mostly with the younger children. But I think as um, particularly for me, as I still do some part-time clinical work through telehealth now that um, I'm mostly working with adolescents yeah. <laughs> at this point, just because it's, it's less challenging to do work online um, with, with teenagers than it is to, to do it with children. Yeah, I can't even, I can't even imagine that, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> trying, trying to keep a kid on, on Zoom or something. Um, uh, and actually, I, so I, I did briefly work with kids. My, my first practicum uh, when I was training, and uh, so I have some limited experience, but continue to talk about the experience of therapy for parents. If they bring their kid in or set them up on Zoom, I guess, I don't know, but if they, <laughs> <laughs> if they let's just say traditionally, you're walking into an office, if they bring their kid in to see a, a child psychologist, how involved are they going to be in that experience generally, would you say? It's sort of a hard question to yeah. answer because yeah, yeah. I think, you know, part of how much involvement may be required depends on like, what is the issue that the child is dealing with? So um, as I mentioned, if it's behavioral issues, then I would say 100% of involvement from parents is going to be you know, necessary to, to do their work and change the child's behavior. Um, but obviously, as the child gets older and maybe um, having have different types of issues, then they be, there may be less involvement that's needed mm -hmm. of the parent. But I do think that at some level, there should be some involvement from the parent if your child or teenager is going to therapy. So one of the things that I talk about, you know, in terms of training, you know, students is that if you're working with youth, you're going to work with parents. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a given. So I think if you have no contact as a parent with your child's therapist, then for me, that's problematic. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that you have to have some level of one, just under understanding what's going on in that therapy session, but also a big part of you helping your child to learn the strategies and practice the, the tools is that you have to do this outside of that therapy space. Mm -hmm. And so you as a parent need to know what's expected of your child. And then how can you either model for them or role play with them to like help them practice mm -hmm. certain skills. Um, that's also going to be a, a really important piece of how they learn to change, you know, their behaviors or, or to be able to manage their emotions and, and their mood. It sounds like the parents are potentially going to be learning at the same time as well. I mean, if they're going to be modeling these things like emotional uh, control and whatever else, it sounds like, you know, they might actually have to learn these things as well. So, yeah, absolutely. So uh, for me, it's definitely making sure that parents understand like what needs to happen so that they could even for a teenager to be able to observe, like, is the child actually doing the skills that we talked about? Mm -hmm. um, and so there is going to be some part of the parent learning to do that, that skill as well. Amazing. Okay, great. So if you're listening to this right now and you haven't brought your kid to therapy, but they need to go, 
know that you, you're going to get to learn some stuff and get involved in it. And we hope that you're courageous enough to take those steps to do those things for sure. Absolutely. Uh, so I, in the intro, I, I mentioned that you are the founder of Therapy for Black Kids, and I'm excited to hear and have my audience hear more about your organization. What is the mission? Why'd you start it? Let's hear about it. I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the idea came to me during the pandemic. Okay. You know, we were all dealing with a lot of things in, in terms of um, isolation, some mental health challenges. Um, for children, you know, being, you know, having school, you know, online and trying to manage that that piece of it. Um, but also within diverse communities of color, racism was also another challenge that we were dealing with. And obviously this is something historically that we've dealt with for a long time mm -hmm. in this country. And so one of the things that I was noticing in terms of the conversations around, you know, coping with mental health and its aspects as it relates to racial discrimination was that most of the targets of those conversations were adults. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, it was like, are we really understanding how kids are being impacted, you know, by this as well? Um, one from, you know, witnessing, you know, what's going on, but also the experiences that they may be having themselves as it relates to, to some of these um, things as well. And I think even just, you know, recently, we've seen where um, Black youth have been having issues around um, hair discrimination and, mm. and a lot of dress code policies, you know, throughout schools. And so I think these are things that parents are aware of, but oftentimes it's being sort of neglected from a lot of the conversations. And so for me, it was like a pivotal time to really begin to provide some conversations Mm -hmm. around this for parents and specifically the Black community, um, and also to, re to be able to talk about what are the ways can we promote resilience to racial discrimination and, and other types of oppression and injustice um, in society. So um, that was sort of how the idea, you know, came to me to, to create the organization. And so the mission of um, Therapy for Black Kids is really to provide some mental health tech support, and that involves um, helping families get connected mm -hmm. to providers. We're not currently providing any type of mental health services. Obviously, you know, there's some challenges around that, but uh, we do try to help people get connected. And so we will, you know, give them some recommendations of, that are in their areas that can be helpful for them. And at this point, I think the most recent numbers that I've looked at, I think in about 25 states oh, wow. that we've been able to connect uh, families to some providers. So that is a big piece of the work that we do. Um, and then being able to provide some educational resources and information about uh, mental health awareness, as well as providing you know, health emotional development. And so we've done a host of virtual events online and, and hosting things on um, social media and, and on our Instagram page to have conversations about different types of mental health problems so that parents have some awareness about what to look out for, what are the warning signs, and when they should seek out, you know, help for some of these things. Um, and then being able to provide some, some general sort of coping strategies or in terms of educational information about how can you manage some of the things that you may be struggling with. It's amazing, yeah. I, I mean, it seems like you've hit on something that's desperately needed right now and, and timely. And, uh, and it seems like you're helping a lot of people. So cheers to you and, and the work of your organization up to this point. 
Thank you. I, I applaud that. you for sure. And actually, the next thing I'm going to ask you about is aligned with, I guess, the mission of the organization. Uh, you're you just finished, I, I guess, writing, uh, and just a bit, right? <laughs> you're like in the middle of it right now. So this is exciting. But the a new book called Raising Resilient Black Kids. Uh, racial stress, you mentioned a little bit about this. But for for our listeners, if you could just say a little bit about what racial stress is, which comes up in the book. Um, and how you can actually how kids can actually effectively cope with it. I know this is a major thing. It's the topic of your entire book, right? But yeah, uh, but if you can say a little bit about these things, so we get an introduction to them at least, uh, so that when we pick up your book, we know, you know, we can dive right in. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so racial stress is really a way to capture psychological reactions to racial discrimination. And so that could look a lot of different ways. Um, and, and some of the research on racial stress has sort of identified how it may be similar to post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, in terms of when people have had some direct exposures to racial discrimination, they may have some sort of re-experiencing of those um, incidents or flashbacks about it or some increased anxiety or physiological symptoms as a result to possible triggers um, of that racial discrimination. And so that is sort of um, sort of a general idea about it. Mm -hmm. um, but a bigger piece of it is also recognizing that uh, racial stress might be associated with other mental health challenges. So um, as I mentioned, things like anxiety. So if you um, are perceiving some threat as it relates to your racial identity, um, you might be a little bit anxious um, in situations. Mm -hmm. um, and if you have experience or witness um, some type of racial discrimination, that could also lead you to experience some types of sadness or depression. And so I think those are some really important things that we want to be aware of, uh, particularly as it relates to, to youth. And so I'm really excited about um, the book that will be coming out next year to provide parents with some step-by-step -step tools about how they can you know, help their child cope with this. Obviously, you know, there can be a lot of ways that people can cope. And so uh, we only have a little bit of time today, so I can't get into yeah. as much detail, but just to sort of talk about a couple of things that I think I'm outlining in the book about for parents to be able to use is one, really thinking about racial socialization and identity. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of work that's been talked about over years about how when you foster this sense of racial identity and connection to your racial community, it increases your racial pride. And okay. those are some really protective factors um, that can reduce the negative impacts that people might um, develop, you know, symptoms of racial stress. Trying to get parents to really, you know, talk more about race, not just sort of the negative aspects of it and preparing them to experience racism or bias, but also to highlight what are the, the cultural aspects um, that might be important to you and your family. Uh, what are the ways that your community has historically contributed to positive things within society or, or your community. Um, and I think those can be helpful for self-esteem building, you know, particularly for youth. And then another piece that uh, some of my work over the, the last couple of years has focused on is really about activism. And so there's a lot of work around that. And so obviously how you do that with children, you know, is going to be very different than what you might do as an adult. And so what are the ways that you can 
um, increase some critical awareness about race with your child through going to museums and talking about, you know, how laws have been changed as a result of activism. You know, can you and your child sit together and write a letter to your local congressman to sort of help um, instill some type of hope and empower them to, to be able to change, you know, some of these negative systems. Um, and then a, a, another piece for me that also comes up in the book is about um, joy and helping your child feel some sense of joy. So obviously racism is heavy. And so you want to be able to also instill the fact that you can sometimes feel some of that hurt, but also make sure that you you don't sit with that all the time and that you can also allow yourself to experience some joy and happiness. So really creating ways for parents to, to um, identify joyful moments and to use mindfulness um, and, and go out in nature and identify those positive aspects that also might be helpful to them. It's amazing. Oh my God. So we all need to pick up the book next year when it comes out. And I know I will for sure. The gist, and I have a question that comes from that, but the, the gist is that there's there's a, multiple layers of stress that uh, somebody like me, a Caucasian guy, is not going to experience necessarily, right? So the, my question is that do kids have the language, let's say a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old or whatever, you know, do they have the, the language to be able to describe uh, an experience of racism or, you know, where... Is there context that needs to be built out there or is it something that's evident to them? I'm curious about this, yeah. I think it depends. So um, one of the things that I talk about in the book is how what kids see in your own experiences as a parent might impact their understanding about this. So if you've if they've seen you experience racism, then their language might be very different from a child who has not witnessed or seen that, you know, in, in their direct day-to-day -day sort of life. Um, and so I think that some kids might have some language to understand, like, this is hurtful, this is rude, this is mean, you know, those types of things. And other kids may not have that language. So I, I do think part of the conversations when you're talking with your kids about race is one, understanding that most kids will recognize racial differences at a very young age. So there's significant amounts of research that talks about, you know, at, at least as young as age three, like kids notice racial differences. They may not have the uh, understanding that we have as adults about specific meaning behind some of those things, but they can definitely recognize, you know, those differences. Um, and so I think part of the conversation around racism is talking with kids about their own experiences to see, you know, have they felt that they've been treated unfair or different because of their race or skin color. Um, and I think kids can can recognize, like if their friends or their peers in their classrooms, et cetera, you know, are treated one way by someone else or a teacher, uh, they can identify like, hey, that wasn't fair. <laughs> right? I think most little kids, they can they can point out, you know, right. something that's not fair. You got more snacks than I did. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that they will have some basic understanding about those differences. Okay. Okay. That's an amazing place to to think about uh, three years old. And so we already recognize mm. these differences. Now we're having this conversation right now, but there are many school districts across the country right now where uh, critical race theory is being challenged and pushed back on. And a couple of years ago, you wrote a book chapter about critical race psychology. I'm imagining similar themes there. Um, 
what are the benefits? I mean, you, you've talked a, a little bit about this already, but maybe the benefits of talking about um, systemic racism and what do we lose if, in these situations where we're not having these conversations with our kids? What do we lose in that? Yeah, I'll start with the second part first. I think what we lose is trying to have an atmosphere of inclusivity. Um, so I think, you know, for me, I've had several conversations, you know, both professionally as well as in the media around this idea about, you know, let's teach kids to not see race, right? Mm -hmm. This idea about colorblindness, which comes up, um, you know, historically in the literature, where we just say everybody is treated the same and fairly. That would be perfect in an ideal world. However, we know that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think part of what is lost is that we are removing, you know, these books and, you know, history as it relates to, at least specifically to the Black community. Um, other groups obviously might be impacted as well. Um, but I think that is then lost in that kids are not learning some of the history mm -hmm. that has happened in this country, even globally, around oppression and colonization. And so I think when they don't have that understanding about what has happened, um, certain things just sort of feel like normal mm -hmm. to them. And, and I think also kids don't really know how to navigate, you know, some of those things as well. So I think a big piece of having these conversations and, and having those spaces is it allows people to understand their unique differences and also their unique contributions. So I think everything doesn't have to be negative. And I think that's part of why we've gotten into this really tough space is that it's historically been a like a taboo topic, especially mm -hmm. with kids. Um, and so I think as people get older, like if you've been taught all of your life that this is not something that you talk about, then it's going to be really difficult for you to have that conversation as an adult. Oh, yeah. uh, and so I think that also leads us, you know, into some of these dynamics that we're dealing with uh, right now. And even I think as a profession, you know, I've seen in my own work and, and even from stuff that I've read in the literature that for white therapists, that they feel distance of discomfort having mm -hmm. conversations with their clients around racism, mm -hmm. um, even when they've taken trainings and workshops on multicultural competence or sensitivity, they still don't feel comfortable or prepared to be able to have those conversations. And so just imagine that if you're working with clients of color or black clients that are bringing up these issues, but you're not comfortable having that discussion, that's going to lead to some difficulties even in that, that sort of therapeutic space. We know it's important to have these conversations, mm -hmm. um, but I also think it's even more important for parents now to recognize that, you know, you can't expect the school to educate your child fully around, you know, certain types of things. And this may be one that you have to do a little bit more independent work on your own to talk with them about sort of your culture, history, and, and being able to have pride in yourself. Yeah. Well, the pride, the, the pride piece and the joy that you talked about, and you talked about, you know, resilience as well. Definitely. If it's not happening in the schools, uh, we got to have these conversations happening at home. Before I lose you here, I do want to talk to you about social media. You mentioned this once, and I know, I think you've been, you know, you've talked, given talks at Meta and other things, you know, you're very, you're a famous guy at this point. But <laughs> we, 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 I, I want to hear your thoughts just in general, like a couple takeaways here for parents who are concerned about, you know, social media for their kids and that, that use. What are your 
take-homes? What are your biggest recommendations to parents around that? Obviously, social media and technology is not going away. And and obviously, there are new things with AI now that's like coming into the conversation. So I, I actually wrote a blog on Psychology Today earlier this year that's, that spoke to this a little bit. Um, and one of the things as I was doing some research around this was trying to really understand how much negativity or how negative it is psychologically on youth. Uh, and when you speak to youth themselves, they have a very different perspective about this than we might have as an adult. But I think that's important because we want to know how they're being impacted emotionally or psychologically. Um, and what what the data shows is that more than half of youth actually find social media to be positive. There you so go. somewhere <laughs> around the 68, 70%. Okay. of youth. Um, and a very small percentage find that it it makes them feel less negative. And so I think a big piece of it is that youth are finding a sense of connection and community on these social media platforms that um, sort of buffer against some of the potential negative aspects of it. And obviously, again, I do recognize that there can be some negative aspects, you know, to it in terms of the things that you're seeing, how it might impact your um, self-esteem or body image for both boys and girls. Um, and the amount of time that they might spend on these platforms as well can distract away from other, you know, responsibilities or different types of social interactions that are also important, you know, for, for their development. So I think some of the, the tips that I really talked with parents about one is like, you need to model. So I, I probably say this every time I talk about anything with kids, it's like parents, kids are watching you. <laughs> So your behaviors are gonna play a really important role in, in how they behave and how they use social media. So really modeling effective use. I think most of us, we are constantly connected to our phones. So like I've seen, um, you know, groups of people out to dinner, everybody's on their phones okay. as opposed to like <laughs> interacting with each other. So how yeah. can you expect to tell your kid like, hey, put the phone down and, and, and come sit yeah. at the table yeah. when <laughs> you all go out and, or you at the table as well and like you're on your phones too. So yeah. I think that's a really big piece of like setting these healthy boundaries or expectations around, you know, social media use. Look into some of the settings on these platforms. I, I'm not going to pull out specifics since there's so many different platforms, but I think you know, there are ways to minimize or set limits on how long you stay on the phone. It'll give you like a nudge or a reminder or something to say your time is almost up, you know, whatever. Obviously, you might bypass that, but I think that helps, you know, to sort of set some boundaries around um, that use as well. And then there's there's some like supervision, sometimes features or monitoring features on some platforms, at least I know for Instagrams. And this is, as you sort of reference, I... I did some consulting work with Meta. Um, and so they do have some supervision features that allow parents to like basically see what their child, um, so who are they following and those types of things, which might, you know, really be important. And um, that can be another way to help support your child to monitor the type of content that they may be consuming. Okay, all amazing, wise pieces of advice for our parents out there. I hope everybody's listening. That's all the time we have for this week. Uh, thank you again so much for coming on the show, Dr. Earl. I appreciate you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Cheers. If you want to learn more about Dr. Earl and all the amazing things he's doing in the world, connect with him on Instagram at Dr. Earl Turner. As always, you can find us at A Better Love Project everywhere. From my heart to yours, love each other fiercely and peace. <laughs>